theme song for the Gear Podcast. I was waiting to hear that in yeah. person. <laughs> Did well, it you, said you, you said you listened, so I got to I got to like really put it on. So, yep. welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're back again. We've got Warren Mendoza on the show today, who you may know as Black Strat Blues. Warren, how are you today, mate? I'm very good, thanks. Very happy to be here. Thanks yep. for having me. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Like you're joining us from uh, the the far, far east. Is yeah, that from correct? the future in in New yeah. Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> so, Quick, what happens? Anyway. <laughs> we do this podcast it's, it goes off really okay. well. <laughs> what about interest rates have they changed let's not get started about that <laughs> now i immediately have uh, a few very important questions for you warren okay. are you a cricket guy i used to be i mean growing up in india it was hard to evade that stuff my brother's still a huge cricket buff he still plays but um i watch occasionally if it's like a world cup or something but not the my my brother and my dad whenever we get together they talk cricket and i kind of listen in so that's like how i catch up on yeah yeah <laughs> um so because i know there is a world cup coming up so my initial question was going to be how do you think india are going to go because they're playing around with the team a little bit and trying to settle in to be honest i if i comment about cricket and i don't know too much the rest of india is going to like kick my ass so <laughs> yeah no like back in the country <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, the second question mm -hmm. that I have uh, for today is, uh, you know, ha have you got the strat which uh, gives you your name? Because uh, I'm I'm here in solidarity with my black strat. Yeah, um, um, I've got one handy here. There's, there's two more black strats in the rack. Very, very important. Uh, and yeah. that's hang on, hang on. I, I got to go get mine. <laughs> nice. This has kind of become a theme uh, recently where it's, you know, everybody loves a good strat. So while Troy is doing that, uh -huh. do you want to give us the Reader's Digest version of, I guess, your career up to date, how you got into guitar, you know, how you obviously mentioned growing up in India earlier, which mm -hmm. I'm super curious to hear about, and how you ended up in New Zealand playing blues. Um, okay, so uh, I grew up in Bombay. I was born in 79, so like the 80s was like, you know, when I grew up. Um, my dad's a musician. His brother is quite a famous uh, Bollywood music writer. His name is Loy Mendonca. And uh, so, you know, surrounded by guitars, my dad used to play in a band when I was a kid. Um, his friends used to come over. I mean, every party would turn into a jam. So, you know, it's kind of obvious that I was, you know, drawn to that. Uh, I think when I was around five, they noticed I had a decent year because I'd start like going to my dad's guitar, which was on the stand and plucking the strings, which <laughs> were in tune with the song that I was playing. So, okay, you need That's a guitar cool. as well. So they bought me a little one, took a few lessons from my dad. I think for a couple of years, he taught me like the chords, you know, basic theory. This is your major scale, blah, blah, blah. And um, he gave me a whole bunch of Beatles cassettes and that became my textbook, I think, between eight and 12, I didn't listen to anything else. I just devoured those Beatles albums. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. And then I think around 12 or 13, I got into like Guns N' Roses mm -hmm. and um, Led Zeppelin. And then my dad said, you should check out this band called Cream and uh, Carlos Santana. Those were like two guys he hit me onto. So um, all the British blues rock became like my predominant influence. Um, and then over time, obviously, you discover like other guitar players like, you know, Michael Landau and Derek Trucks and Robin Ford and all that good stuff. So all that's like part of the DNA. So around um, 
I went to engineering college, by the way, for like three years, um, studying electronic engineering. And um, in my third year, um, my dad's friend had a recording studio and they uh, were looking for an intern. And he said, you want to you know, try this out? And I was like in my last year and I was like, eh, I don't know if I can do both. But I knew like, you know, these kind of jobs don't really come around too often. So I um, went and I found that this was like, you know, much more fun than that engineering, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of dropped out in my last year. And um, I was predominantly working on post-production, you know, like TV uh, commercials and stuff like that. But occasionally we would have an album project that we'd be doing. And uh, slowly they noticed that, oh, this guy plays guitar. And it's like, oh, you've got your guitar handy. Can you just put some guitar on this? And, you know, and over time, I ended up playing on a bunch of Bollywood songs as well, you know, uh, as a session guitar player. And I was also part of a band called Zero, which was like, um, I, I would say right now, like it would be classic rock. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the time, it was like very 90s rock influenced, you know, like Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots. But there was also like that Beatles thing going on as well with the vocal harmonies as well. Quite interesting band, but uh, around 2004, I thought it was time for a change. And my parents had moved to New Zealand the year before, along with my two other brothers. I was kind of having fun in the band. I said I'd stay back. Um, so then 2004, I landed up here and I stayed here till 2010. So that was around six years in New Zealand. And during that time, I worked in a recording studio here as well, met a few good musicians. Um, did the you know Friday night covers band thing as well, which was I have to say a really good learning curve as well because you, I mean I was kind of the weakest link. The other three guys in the band played bass, drums, guitars, and keyboards, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I just play guitar and a little bit of bass, you know. So um, once uh, that wound up around 2010, I started getting heaps of work back in India on um, Bollywood stuff. I went over there like maybe six times in a year. Then I met my wife and I was like, okay, this makes more sense to you know, stay here. And once our daughter was born, I decided now maybe time to you know, move back to New Zealand. And we came back here in 2010. And uh, since I'm mean, just getting back into the scene here has, has been pretty cool. Met a few you know, really good musicians like Nick Granville you spoke about earlier. Um, so it, it's been cool. I mean, just balancing the, you know, dad, guitar, and uh, making music, making a living doing that, and that sort of stuff. That's the Reader's Digest version. Yeah. <laughs> so my first question is, <laughs> what was it like having to play a Dave Dobbin song for the first time? And what did you think of it? <laughs> oh, uh, I think I probably got, like, you know, shoved into the deep end, like, or just follow the bass player for the chords, that sort yep. of thing. Um, I remember distinctly about uh, having to play April Sun in Cuba. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you guys know that one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and the bass player do you know April Sun in Cuba? I said, I've never heard this song in my life. It doesn't matter. You'll, <laughs> you'll follow. So, like, bam, bam, bam. Okay, cool. I know how this goes. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, yeah, man. This be, I've, I've actually been digging, like, a few um, Australian guitar players as well of late, like um, um, Irvin Thomas from oh, Sun. Yeah. That guy is amazing. I, mm. I saw Michael Landau cover that he did. That's how I kind of got hip to him. And I, I mentioned that last week to yeah. Nick because that's when I connected the dots that he was the guy from Southern Sons because I remember them playing on Hey Hey It's Saturday, you know, like on and just this guy with a strat and long hair. And I was like, oh, 
my dad looks like that. It's <laughs> obviously doing the same thing, but seeing him with Electric Mary and they open up for Judas Priest and it's still up, like up there with the best live guitar solos I've ever seen. He just, I, I have no idea. Nice, it was so good. There's a nice Electric Mary live video. I, I watched it a few yes. times. Man, the guitar sound, I mean, the overall production sounds great, but really live guitar sound even doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, he's fantastic. So we've got that, but that's, I mean, that's an amazing story to start with. And I guess, like, for some context, mm -hmm. uh, India is now the most populous country in the world, right? Like yep. 1.4 billion people. And, and Yeah, and, and, and counting. So, and how, I mean, firstly, it's, developed massively economically since you were a kid right so what was it like how did you get gear back then compared to you know we always complain about being in australia that it's hard to get gear but being a young indian kid what was what were the choices oh um, that's a really good question so um there was this shop down the road from my house which showed which sold used books and magazines and for some reason they had a ton of guitar magazines <laughs> so i would just buy those like for really cheap i mean they may, may have been a few months old or whatever but like that's how i kind of started figuring oh this is what these guys are using and you remember those all the ada mp1 ads and yeah. you know i mean you couldn't turn a page without seeing one of those um so, you know, guitar player used to do these uh, shootouts between like 28 high gain amps review. I think <laughs> I still have the mag somewhere. Uh, and that's like, oh, you know, like, this is the range of amplification because all we knew was Fender and Marshall, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, I was lucky in, in one way because my dad had a, a, a Fender basement oh, head cool. uh, from I think late 70s or something like that. Um, and uh, he had a clone made. This is a hilarious story, by the way. So he gave me the clone to play when I just started playing. And my uncle upstairs had, like, literally it looked like a piece of military equipment. It was <laughs> green shell kind of a thing. And, and I think in the 50s, he built his own electric guitar, like, actually oh, right. wound pickups and everything like that. He was quite a handy guy. And he got this amp made at the local hi-fi store, which was, now I figured it, it was a clone of a Vox AC-10. Okay, cool. Uh, for me, I plugged it in, I turned it up. And, you know, it kind of sounded like sunshine of your love, you know, that. and then I figured, oh, you turn your guitar volume down, it cleans up, you know, that's like a, a magic thing once you figure that bit out. Um, the thing so, that most professionals still haven't figured out. <laughs> exactly. So I remember taking that amp and, and a one by 12 cabinet that he had made um, to the local, uh, you know, jam session and stuff. And there was a clarinet player who was actually louder than that amp. <laughs> and that was like, this can never be. So I figured out how to plug the output of the little amp into the big Fender amp mm -hmm. because that, that one didn't have any distortion, right? It was just clean. And it actually sounded, you know, pretty good. So that that became like my sound. Then that little guy blew up. And uh, then I bought a Boss HM2, which... Yeah. All right. A classic into the Fender amp. So that was like a, a good sound. And the, I remember the singer wanted to do some... Um, U2 songs, and he had just come back from overseas with this Alesis MIDI verb. All right. Wow. I said, well, you know, I kind of need the effects if we have to do U2, so rather than using it in your voice, why don't you just plug into the amp, which has reverb, and I'll use this for the guitar. So that became a, a rig for a, a short moment. Um, then uh, some guy I found wanted to buy the, the clone that, of my dad's amp. 
So I remember selling it to him and I had marked uh, the money aside for a Zoom uh, 4040. Remember those? Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. Okay. I said, okay, I'm going to get one of these Zoom things. But my mom, I gave her the money to keep. She bought me a suit. That <laughs> 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 you need the suit more than you need any gear. So, yeah. Go for it. So, well, actually, due to her, then I went and whatever money was left, I bought the Boss HM2, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I mean, that's probably a better time, investment, like, looking yeah. Up, yeah. I mean, it sounded <laughs> better, noticing. not at the time, but yeah. And uh, then my parents knew, they, one of their friends owned a sound reinforcement company and he was selling some of the old backline. I managed to get a JSCM 822 uh, or 3, 100-watt one right. from 1980. Or 80, like the first year, I think they came out was 80 or something. Yep. And I think he bought them either from the police or Wishbone Ash when they were touring in. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so that was my first good amp. And then I just started like getting on the internet and searching oh, Harmony Central, you know, for, for info. Yeah. And said, oh, you need to boost the input of the, the 2203. And then, uh, you know, Marshall made pedals in India for a while. The, oh, okay. Before, those silver ones with the four knobs. They made in oh, India. Oh, right, yeah. Wow. My, my, I friend's those. Dad, my friend's dad owned the company, so we got all the oh, prototypes right. to try out. Right. Yeah. And that was like for the longest time, that was my rig. That blues breaker pedal set mm -hmm. only on the clean boost mode into the 800. Uh, then I think I got a boss, uh, you know, those rack mount delays, DD something, the gray one with the multicolored knobs. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So I then uh, modded the 800 for um, an effects loop, just like a, a passive one. Oh, yeah. And then I figured out how to split the dry signal on the 800 and the, the wet signal on like a rental amp at the side. You know, wet, dry in wet, like dry, a yeah. primitive <laughs> form. <laughs> uh, then um, I think the pods had started coming out. Mm -hmm. So I got the Pod XT Pro, the rack one with yep. the... FBV foot controller that never really sounded as obviously as good as the the Marshall but like you know for like quick studio recordings and stuff like that it was cool but I remember also just before I got that there was Ampharm the the Pro Tools plugin yep. that the studio had that I was working at those were pretty good man after still I mean I got some good sounds out of that, that yeah plugin. a friend of mine still raves about Ampharm which I, I don't it, think it's compatible anymore I, I I don't think you can use it on any modern system but I remember he uh, assisting on an album where he used that for everything. And this is in like maybe 2012. Okay. So like that's not that long ago, all things considered. And at that time, there was some better better plugins out. But he just really liked it. He had had it kind of dialed in. So yeah, that was a little bit underrated of a, of a yeah. amp sim. And I remember like uh, when I got the pod, I used to go through like the different amp models you know, and finally, every time the Soldano came out, I would, oh, that's the, yeah. you know, the fullest sounding one. So at the back of my head, I always kind of, you know, wanted one of uh, these. And I, I think a few years back when I was touring the state, <laughs> just before they went out of business, I found um, the one in the rack. I was going to say, literally in the back of your head right now, I can see a Soldano. So yeah, that's a I nice free. It's funny to me because it's, you know, uh, when initially when we connected like over Instagram, I'm, I'm looking at your stuff. I'm like, this guy likes Gary Moore. He's got Soldanos. <laughs> he's into rack effects. He likes David Gilmore. You know, it's like, this is, you know, you're like my spirit animal. It's all the same thing. Cause Soldano for me was the, um, 
but Gary Moore, I can't remember what the concert, it might be After Hours. I know After Hours is the album, but it's the one where B.B. King and Albert Collins come out and play with him. And he's just got this like raging guitar sound the whole time. And you can see really clearly there's a Soldano on stage. So that was maybe the third concert video I ever saw. Once I'd started playing, it was like, you know, Deep Purple California Jam, um, that Stevie Ray Vaughan Live of the El Macambo. Yeah, that was the first cool. DVD my family ever owned. Oh, um, I remember my dad coming home with a DVD plan being like, oh, you got to check this guy out. Mate, I had Shrek. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was my See, first DVD. You you clearly had a superior childhood to me. It was like, <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan, just on blast. It was the only DVD we had. But yeah, then that Gary Moore one. And yeah, that it, like it imprinted in me that one day I have to get one of these amps. And yeah, they they do... Nothing else really does that sound, do they? No, the, the the thing is most people gravitate to the overdrive channel, but for me that crunch channel, you know, just, you know, they go to 11. So just around 10. <laughs> I, I can't actually say that's an SLO. Yeah, yeah, that's an SLO. But you know, the, the concert you spoke about, Leon, I think he had a hot rod for that. He had a hot rod 50 oh, or right. 100. Yeah. yeah, I heard that later. I just always assumed it was an SLO. And then the guy I bought my hot rod off is a buddy of ours. Um, mm. Shout out to Nick Rossetti if he's watching this. Uh, thanks for selling me your app. And then thinking, oh, you know, it sounds really good. And SLO obviously is going to be better. And then years later, someone being like, Gary Moore was using a hot rod. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of a happy accident because I love that sound. Yeah, he used to run the Crunch Channel with a tube screamer in front or something, which is a great sound. I mean, to me, it's like the most, um, it's like a Marshall went to, private school or something (laughs) (laughs) i'm a bit sort of i come and go with them a little bit just um not i've I've not played an slo because there's not really any around here and i've but i've used leon's quite a bit but i've had moments when i've played it or when we've recorded with it where it's just the best amp like it's it's unreal and i often find too when i'm like you were with the pod when i'm going through modelers um in either my axe or my um hx stomp i'm sort of like i'll stop and go that's really cool but it's, it's like you say, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of so polished that I, I, I sort of also enjoy a tone that has a bit of shit about it. And yeah. That one, and it's also, it's so clear and I'm like, ah, oh, it's too, everyone's going to hear how bad my guitar playing is. I use something else, you know? Yeah. It does one thing though. Like when you get the masters just past six, that, that power amp just wakes up and you just get this yeah. whoop. And the whole thing just fattens up. I mean, I just leave it at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's six on my hot rod as well. Like, there's such a big... Uh, it's it's almost like, you know, the lights come on and it's just like, there it is. Just to go back to something that you said earlier with the Beatles, it's interesting that, you know, the Beatles kind of famously went to India like a lot of people did and then having their music go to the UK and then kind of come back around. It's uh, it's like actually the amazing thing about music is something resembling a universal language. Yeah. Did How did you, where did the Strat enter the conversation for you? Because obviously your thing. Um, I mean, predominantly like the, the desire to get one was because it looked cool. And I just remember seeing like Clapton and Hendrix on, you know, guitar mags and stuff like that. Um, the all black one, I remember seeing the edge and the streets have no name video. Uh, it's kind of funny, like those uh, all black ones they made in the year I was born in 79. And you find quite a few of those hardtail ones, but they have the large headstock and the three bolt neck, which I don't like. So I 
I don't think I'll ever get one of those. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm more of a you know 50s headstock guy. But fair enough. Um, the um, at the time I got serious about playing guitar in a band and stuff, the strats were much easier to come by than Les Pauls. There were the Epiphone ones made in Korea. Mm-hmm. And they always had that weird headstock, which, you know, <laughs> so much of it is the look, you know, yeah, because you don't want to be seen with something that you don't 100 percent, you know, love and stuff like that. But uh, my first good strat was the Mexican Floyd Rose strat the okay. bridge. And uh, then I started losing parts of the Floyd Rose. And <laughs> I, I think that guitar still somewhere at my parents' house. Um, so I saved up and I bought um, an American Lone Star Strat. Oh, yeah. was, I remember those, yeah. And uh, that was gold and I wanted it black. So I found a guy who, you know, did the paint job and stuff like that. Um, once I settled on that, that became my main guitar for like, I think, 17 years till Air Canada lost it. Oh, <laughs> I lost it. No. So then I was in Singapore not too long after that, and I found this guy um, at this shop called Ebonex, which is like a used... I don't know if you're ever there. You find no, some no. cool stuff in that store. So um, they had this guy's autograph. He signed all over, like, year. This guy called Sugizo with Silver Marco. And I was like, I don't know who, who this guy is. <laughs> I don't think it's, like, you know, worth paying more money for an autograph. In fact, I think it devalues the guitar. So, well, yeah. you know, and, and and I think they had already done some, um, like, it had a three-ply guard, which normally comes with a, a single-ply one. Um, they had put two string trees. They had, um, I think, put that David Gilmore switch to link the, you know, so it had a few mods. So I was like, okay, I I think I, I have the license to mod it further, you know, so then I put the humbucker in. And um, one thing I do on all strats, though, I put this five, four pole five way switch, like they call it a super switch, because then it lets me um, use this stone knob only for the the uh, bridge pickup. Okay. Cool. And then you go one, two, three, four on, you know, these single coils and stuff. And this guitar switches the volume uh, from 500 to 250 when you use the single coils. All right. That's awesome. You get the the whole thing. I, I think it, it came from a source schematic. And then I asked uh, John Sir a few questions. Thankfully, he answers my questions. Without, <laughs> like, you know, who's this annoying guy emailing me? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he did, in fact, he did a really good mod on uh, one of the amps because um, my friend had uh, sent an amp to his shop for modding, and then he bought a PT-100, the first edition. So he said, hey, I have an amp lying at sir. Do you want to buy the amp, and then you can have him mod it to whatever, you know? So I think I probably got one of the last Marshalls that sir ever modded. Wow. And he did the the Landau mod to it. Ah, awesome. So what I've heard of that mod, do you know specifically what it roughly does? It's basically an 800 with a slightly fatter, you know, front end. It lets oh, okay. more gates through or something like that. Oh, but it's it's EQ'd so well, you know, like you're normally you're always fighting an 800. It's either got too much low end or like this weird high end. Uh, the only time I found like an 800 used to sound like I wanted was when I was playing a Les Paul through it. Right. But yep. the moment a Strat went through it, it, you know, I was always fighting it and having to do shit with pedals and stuff like that. So you just plug a Strat, bang, and it's like this big, huge, you know, you know almost... Hendrixy in a way, right? I guess coming from Landau, that would be kind of what he was going for. So, what um, humbucker do you put in your strat? Oh, I use the Thornbucker Plus in this one. Oh, okay, I gotcha. 
I haven't tried one directly, but uh, one of my students uh, who got into building, well, he's building his own parts casters and uh, going wild with it. And he was like, yeah, the Thornbuckers, uh, they're my favorite at the moment for, for strats, not so much for like Les Paul style <laughs> guitars, but he was really smitten with them. Yeah, I, I find I have to roll the tone back a little bit, around four or five, and it sounds really sweet then. Right. Um, I have another one with the SSV in it, and that's oh, yeah. a little more fatter sounding. But there's a new Thornbucker that came out not too long back uh, with the Alnico 2 magnet, so I'm keen to try that at some point. Right. Leon, do you have an SSV, hey? Or do I have an SSV? Uh, I think you've got an SSV. I've got uh, in my Makati, I just put a, an Aldrich in it. But I yep. did have... I had a Sir something. I have no I idea. I reckon I have it, it, man. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's an, so, that's an SSV then. Because, you know, we talk about the toy library a lot in which we just share all of our stuff as well as a few other friends of ours. But there's also, I mean, Leon gave me, He's. I think he's forgotten about this, but I have a box of pickups that belong to Leon um, that I reckon you gave me approximately 12 years ago. Oh, and, um, I should probably go through them and, and see what's I, in there. I think I organized them all into like a different box. It was like a postage box from Australia Post and they That's were just right. in there. I remember now. But yeah, I think there was a Sir SSV in there. There was your the um the huge what are the um the the PRS pickups. Oh, the, the, the PRS pickups, yeah. The yeah, those ones things. no one likes. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm actually curious what was your reaction like when you first popped in the, the Lando pickups into your strat? Oh, it was just so like so that guitar was the backstory with it is it was when i started playing when i was about 13 or 14 so my dad also plays guitar um you know and he kind of saw i was really serious about it he had this stack of guitar cases and you know as you do with your dad what's this what's this and thinking it was just an empty case it was this thrashed out case and i opened it and there was a strat in there and it just smelled like someone had poured a beer on it it was that you know you know you're like walking down the street in the afternoon and you walk past a pub and they've just opened the doors and there's that like smell of like moldy pops or whatever it is it was just that i remember being like oh my god this is terrible and uh it was you know the frets were really worn down and i played it a little bit and i kind of kind of liked it but it sounded really thin it was pretty much a stock 70 strat and he'd the story was he was like, yeah, I bought it off this guy who advertised it. And, you know, it's like going to his house was like, you know, going going to someone's like the basement of a pub where it was just, you know, this guy was living in squalor. And he sort of like, you know, tiptoed around, bought the guitar. And then because it smelled so bad and it didn't sound that great, he just kind of never played it. So I was like, I'll play this a bit. And then I kind of butchered it and put a bunch of weird stuff in it. And then Troy borrowed it off me Oh yeah, and was like, Hey man, this is actually like a super vibey guitar. I cleaned it and now it works good. And uh, he had it for a while. And when I got it back, I was like, Oh yeah, this is a super vibey guitar. And yeah, those pickups came up as a fully loaded set. And I was like, nothing to lose. The yeah. price is right. And I popped them in and I was like, that's the sound I want, you know, out of like, kind of vintage, kind of modern. They, they have that sparkle without being too... I would describe the pickups that were in there before. They were like wiry. Like it sounded like yeah. a... Like think of like a surf guitar sound, that well, that sort of thing. Hang on. Mm -hmm. Did you... When I did that guitar up, because one of the big things I did was like I cleaned the bridge because the bridge was like awful. It was just gunky, like dunked in gunk. I will just say yeah. that. But I also put... Um, guitar in question. You can see yeah, the yeah. the absolute 
rot on the side of it. It's, yeah. it's been swapped a few times. But like, I remember just sitting there for hours, just like cleaning every part with like um, cotton buds. And I just kind of was enjoying it. I don't mind doing that sort of stuff. But what I did do, remember Leon, is I put a different pick guard on there because I just had one. That's and right. And I chucked that on because I, I thought it looked cool. And I also put some um, lace sensor pickups in there because I had those yeah. lying around. Which sounded pretty good. Yeah, they were cool because I had them in a different strat and I really liked them. I think it was like the red, the silver and something else. I don't remember color what it was, but I liked those. And then when I gave you the guitar back, did it have the lay sensors or did I put the original ones back in? Because I feel like it didn't, maybe it didn't have the originals or had one of them or something. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was in a, it was in a bit of a state. But then you uh, put, did, you had a set of Fralins. Was that in that guitar or in the like Rosewood neck? That was in, that was in another guitar. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, and, you know, it's just kind of got the look back, which I kind of like as well. Yep. Uh, Blackguard, it still has this very slight whiff about it where it's like, you know, I'm, I, you can, <laughs> you play it and you're just like, yeah, there's something going on. You know, like when you get like a nice new Gibson or something, the like smell of the lacquer or whatever they have, how it's so pleasant. Uh, you're just like in this little zone. This is kind of the opposite. It's... Uh, it's like a drunk guy at a gig's come up to you and sort of leaned on you. But, um, yeah, having it refretted and kind of functional is I, I have a deep appreciation with this guitar. Even though it's a three-bolter, it's uh, it's come good. Can I yeah. say, too, I've got those ML pickups in my Sir, um, and I like it. They sound awesome. Yeah. Like, what I equate them to is kind of like what we were talking about with the, um, the Soldano. It's that they have a lot of clarity to them. To me, it's like you, you're not like missing anything when you're playing on that guitar. It just gives you like everything with a lot of nice polish on it. Um, sometimes it's like a little too clear and a little too chimey for me, but I still really enjoy the way that guitar sounds. Although I'm not sure if that's just the pickups or the entire way the guitar is put together. It's could be it's some of its parts sort of the situation. I suppose. I, I found with those pickups, by the way, you have to keep the volume around nine. And okay. Right. The tones a little bit. It just sweetens up. Yeah, this is a big thing, right? How do you set up the volume and tone controls on your guitars? What's your default? Because Meathead, like me, is default everything on 10. And I'm sure that's probably the majority of people. They don't realize that like, you can that that stuff here on the guitar actually interacts with the pickups and the rest of the rig. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a treble bleed, then the volume is obviously going to sweeten up the sound. I mean, I call it sweeten up. Some people say it makes it darker. But I set up my amp a little brighter than most people normally would because I roll the you know volume down to, say, around 8 as a starting point. Mm -hmm. um, my neck and middle, the tone will be, say, around 8 again. And the bridge, I dunk it down to around 4 or 5. Okay. That's my starting point. So I always have, you know, more to go. And if I put on a pedal to boost the amp, then maybe that volume will come down further to around six or seven. Right. I think if you look at Landa, I think around six is his, you know, median point. And then he's got the volume pedal after the boost pedal. So right. he runs the, the, the boost on full and then he'll just back off the volume and, you know. Yeah. It's, and it's like a dance between the guitar volume and, the, and that volume pedal. So as you turn the guitar up, you want to kind of back that volume pedal or vice versa. So once you start doing that, you'll find like some really cool sounds. You may not even have to adjust your amp at all. You know, you can just do that. So I typically switch between two boost pedals. So either like an RC booster and a Maxon SD9. Right. 
one's cleaner, one's dirtier. But similar EQ curves. They're not really very mid boosty. Yeah, so I love the RC boost. Want, yeah, if I do want that, then like I have a tube screamer, either of I think a Maxon OD9, which is like a tube screamer, or the the TS Mini man. That's a really good pedal, I have to say. Okay, so I forgot they did the minis because they did a mini delay and a mini chorus as well. Yeah, that's that'd be a really cool little board. So dreaming. <laughs> Uh, That's one of, one of a really good uh, choices to boost the Marshall of of some sort. You know, if you've got the amp slightly crunchy, then that TS Mini does the what you'd expect it to do really well. And and they're really cheap to come by. I think I see some for like sixty or seventy bucks hmm. usually. Um, yeah, I was going to say like, I I think we've we've kind of already discussed this, but um, yeah. So your amp in terms of the the amount of crunch. Are you keeping it sort of like edge of breakup or like relatively clean? Um, or what, what I can actually like? show you if you, if you yeah, want because yeah. it's kind of plugged in at the moment. So um, say um, put the pedals off. Oh, sorry. Yeah, right. That's okay. <laughs> so what I yeah. Can you hear this? So that's about as much of gain I've got on the amp. So this is a um, custom audio OD100, the classic plus, which is like awesome. the other thing. So um, the gain on the amp is around six, bass around four, tre uh, middles around seven, treble six, present six, and the master volumes around between four and five. And it's running into a Sir reactive blow. So I've got that on, and then there's a choice of a few boost pedals that I normally do. So this is the um, the Roger Mayer Voodoo one, which is really nice. It's almost like a fuzz face kind of thing. So then you turn the guitar volume down to say around five, and you've almost got this nice clean. And that's through the drive channel of the app. Right. So if you want to make a Marshall, get a nice clean sound of a crunchy Marshall, that's one of a, a few good pedals that... Even it's such a, to me, it's such a counterintuitive thing, but once you know it, like the treble booster or fuzz and the volume control down on a Strat is like, it's better than just the clean sound. Yeah, totally. I mean, you put some of the... SVX90. Ah, uh, yeah. It's like... But the thing is, you you got to learn that right-hand thing, how to just hit the strings without, you know, hitting too hard. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I guess most most guys who've been playing a while know that. That sort of thing. So uh, that's one uh, pedal that I use a lot. And then if you turn the, the guitar volume up... That kind of thing. The neck pickups really oh, nice yeah. as well. So that's one. Then uh, that there's, there's a full tone octafuzz, which is nice. Uh, th this is the TS Mini, which is like my 80s kind of... Yeah, it chops the lowest, so it tightens up the whole... So if I ever want to chugga-chugga, then that's the one thing that comes on. And, uh, you know, the... Yeah, man. <laughs> nice. Yeah, man. Um, uh, that is... Time, the, so the, good. 
most of the time the um, Maxon SD9, which is the Landau Henderson bell, that's kind of like my main lead sound. It's not as tight, but it's got like a fuller low end. Yep. And the neck pickups like so it can grind if you turn the volume up all the yep. way. Or it, it will clean up a little bit. That sort of thing. Yeah. Man, you awesome, like man. you you need to do a, like a standalone video on <laughs> on YouTube just demonstrating that uh, in detail because it's such a you know. I didn't get it for a long, long time. Like you say, why do people have three or four drive pedals on their board and this kind of thing? But like just hearing that and the way it's, you know, part of your musical voice and the way it's like having the gear, but then knowing, I guess there's like specific use cases by stuff that, you know, you mentioned like Scott Henderson and Lando with the SD9 or, you know, the Hendrix thing with the fuzz. It's like, it's almost... (sighs) It's not a substitute for knowing how to play, but it's this extra layer on top of like when you know how to use the gear and you sort of understand the classic references, but then actually being able to do it um, is is so cool. I have to ask as well, and it's a technique-based thing. Because mm-hmm. um, I see people do it and I, I can't, like I just haven't sat down and figured out the thing to do. It's like the upward rake thing <laughs> that you do, like that, that to me is yeah there's certain things people do when they play and it's just like oh yeah this guy this guy gets how to play blues um or like the kind of hendrix strain of blues it's like what's the trick to actually being able to do that properly um you mean the yeah like what do you what do you aim for with your left hand um i it's to me it's like the right hand like your picks always at an incline right it's never right that way right right you think like 12 o'clock six o'clock it's big between one and seven that that yep. angle so you get less drag over here mm-hmm. and uh that sort of thing i don't know it's it's just about knowing how much pressure to apply and at this point i think it's so subconscious i, I don't even like you know think about it yeah yeah i i would think that also like um the the material you, you use in a plectrum because i find it harder to do with like harder picks yep the one i'm using right now is a nylon 1.07 okay, okay. you know it's stiff enough but it, it also has a bit of a of a give that sort of thing um i mean a lot of stevie ray went into you know the the dna so i think that's yeah yeah out. and uh, very often i'll angle the picks i'm using the rounded edge and not the, okay. the yeah. one. That's an old, uh, again, Stevie Ray and Landa, all these guys, just to fatten it up. I mean, you can kind of hear this, right? That's like with the pointy edge. And yeah. I mean, it's it's subtle, but it's there, you know? So um, it's almost like, you know, Strat is kind of like a language, just like Telly is. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Learn a few phrases from from all the play. I think Robin Trow is another huge influence mm. as well. Yeah, so, and in terms of, so my other thing is like, uh, the I hear a bit of the trial thing and like your vibrato as well. Is that some something you ever thought about? Did you just do it, like trying to mimic other players or is it something that you really consciously go out and it's like, yeah, I want my vibrato to do this? Yeah, I, I worked on it like maybe around three or four years back, just uh, mm-hmm. before COVID happened. 
because I kept on like hearing, you know, recorded bits of myself and I would like cringe sometimes like <laughs> with a really fast 80s vibrato and I was like, fuck, I need to get, let's just civilize it a bit, you know, get it a bit more <laughs> under control. <laughs> so I, I remember watching a, a Python video where you talked about like he got one of his students to bend up to pitch first and then hang on to the note and then apply the vibrato. And I found out like when I did that, it, it made things a little, you know, sweeter in that sense, a little more controlled. Um, and then I think what happens is the more you consciously work on it, it comes to a point where you don't have to think about it as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. because then it just, it's there in your playing. But I think you have to go through that phase of being aware of how you're, you know, uh, how, how much pressure you're applying. And also like, say you, you bend to pitch, right? You're going from like zero to hundred and then you come down to like 80 and go back to 100. And then you come yeah, back to 80 and 100, not like, you know, 95, 100, yeah. 80, 100, 75, 100, that sort of thing. So just that even amount of, of uh, pitch variation, I, I found that once I just concentrated on that a bit. And I would record myself. I think like I spend like hours just hitting that note and go, and just like, you know, speeding it up. Yeah. Otherwise, like, I think I had that really wide John Sykes kind of vibrato when I was, like, much younger, you know? That that was, like, the most, like, dramatic, <laughs> epic-sounding vibrato. So that's what you gravitate to. And then you hear, like, different players, like, the vibrato becomes their signature. And I think also as a session guitar player, I would get references. So can you make it more like Gilmore, more like Hendrix or whatever, yep. and kind of learn how to do that. Um, having said that, though, I, I think... Uh, like a lot of the the Jimmy Pageisms went in as well, <laughs> you know. It's almost like borderline, um, shall we say, sloppy. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's got a vibe. Yeah, so yeah. That, and I I never really like things to be too precise and you know everything locked and you know I I like a little bit of the the slop as well. It kind of gives it uh, some character and, and personality. But it, again, it's a fine line, you know. Yeah, where it sounds aesthetically cool. And when it sounds just shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you find, uh, I mean, you just got back from some sold out shows in India, right? Yep. Do you find that that adrenaline of like a packed room and like you kind of maybe when you really get going, it it just, yep. it, the sykes comes out or something like that? Because I see clips of myself right. play live and I'm often <laughs> like, oh, I really like the vibrato. And then sometimes it's like, geez, man, like, you sound like you just did some cocaine. Um, and then I'll listen to myself record it and I'm always like, oh, I could have given it a bit more sauce. You know what I mean? It's like, it's always that there's there's a like a, a wide neighborhood of what I would normally think sounds good, but because it's your own playing, you're like, oh, geez, yeah, no, listening to it now, I would have, I would have done that. So how do you um how do you find that going? How how long have you been going back and forth from living in New Zealand and then how like how often do you go to India to play these shows? Um, th this one I went in, I think was the second time this year I've been there. And before that, I wasn't back there till 2020, early 2020. Right. Yeah. Understandably. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there was like very few flight options and stuff like that. What um, was happening? I mean, I'm kidding. I'll make that joke every time we talk about this. So. <laughs> um, I I find it uh, a little bit cooler uh, in the sense I used elevens uh, in uh, E flat tuning. Mm -hmm. nice. Oh, me that, too, man. That's my favorite. Again, on a strat, I think the moment you go with slightly thicker strings, contrary to the Rick Beato video, you should have tried on a strat. Oh as my well. god! <laughs> okay, let's talk about that afterwards. But yeah, go on, please. <laughs> so I found. I mean, I started off playing eights on my Floyd Rhodes strat, and you know, 
it's fun and everything, but then I always gravitated towards fatter sounds. And then I ended up, you know, with 11s. And then once you tune them down, they kind of feel like tens and standard, you know. So this guitar yours is tens and standard, but the the live guitar for Black Star Blues is elevens in in E flat. Um, and I found you kind of have to use a little less gain as well. You don't need to pile it on to get it to you know sustain and sound thick. Um, you just have to be mindful about how much low end you're dialing in on the amp. So I do the classic thing where you turn the bass to zero and I slowly bring it up till it fills out and I leave it i don't go any more than that mm-hmm. um it's just basically trying to balance the you know you want to get your low strings to have some twang but you want to get the highs ones to to have some fat as well so that's the classic um you know, i almost want to try like really thin um wound strings and thick high ones just to see what that would sound like because oh, yeah. apparently hendrix used uh 10 to 38 or something oh really yep which okay. is kind of interesting uh, yeah, that would, I couldn't do it. in E flat too. Geez, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I just quickly. I don't want to go on a rant, but just unpopular opinion. But, like, but go on a rant. That uh, Rick Beato video about the light strings just made me so mad. Uh, I know it's just it's all opinions and stuff, but because he's effectively a cult leader at this point as well, he's so popular, and um, I'm not gonna like discredit his like. Um, what do you call it? Like his, how intelligent and how like good at he is at, at everything. But man, come on. You want a bit less low end in your guitar? Just bloody turn the, the bass knob down a bit. You know what I mean? You know what's really hard to do with light strings is keep the fucking thing in tune. Like, <laughs> I mean, and I'm just talking like doing sessions and stuff. I don't know if you're the same, but I get like guys coming and using all my guitars all the time. And, you know, it's hard, like, keep it like fretting a chord is hard enough like to put the amount of pressure on where like you don't accidentally push a little too hard or accidentally pull his fingers down a little bit too much and it's like that only gets worse when you lighten the strings up and it's like man if all you need to do is just turn that one thing down or like you know in in terms of a signal flow thing i'm pretty sure at the start of that video said well you know i was talking about using a tube screamer in front of an amp to get less low end just do that just do that (laughs) And make the guitar like way more playable and way more in tune for everybody's sake. Because unfortunately, like at least in my experience, the people that I've worked with, um, they just don't go home and practice enough to make that guitar stay in tune. I wish they did, but it's just, it's the sort of thing where like, I mean, at this point, I don't have, I got two kids, you know, like I don't have time to sit there and like bloody learn how to keep my guitar in tune. It's these fucking heavier strings. Jesus Christ. So... Anyway, I don't want to like get everyone hating on me for hating on Rick Beato, so I'll stop. But oh, that's that okay. made me so you bloody know, mad. Everybody, every uh, every podcast needs a good cop and a bad cop, <laughs> yeah. and I'm already everyone's friend. So Mate, you know, Uncle we're Leon. It is funny how that has come around, though, from when I was starting to play guitar early 2000s. How you know the the guys in the know were like, yeah, like 13s and like. Yeah. If, you're not actually punching your guitar with your raw fist, then that's not playing. And I still, uh, you know, Warren, you've done some teaching. Troy, you do some teaching. It's like one of the, um, I, I don't say this in like a condescending, I know better way, but I've heard it so many times where it's it's almost like an eye roll moment where, you know, someone's like, oh yeah, I, I hit pretty hard when I play guitar. And it's like, I bet you do. <laughs> you know, it's that's a, it's kind of like 
it's it's often floated around in this like yeah you know you just like play so intensely uh and i mean i was doing a live stream a while ago and someone was like oh you actually you know when you play it looks like you're not playing very hard so i always just thought you had like a super light touch and it's like no you can you can vary that and it's actually playing the guitar so hard that it goes out of tune is actually not the best thing you have to be able to like like finesse rather than raw power because everybody you know you get wound up like i was saying the live thing you know the amount of john sykes intensifiers uh, just because you've got some adrenaline in your system and it's actually being able to go the other way which is the real challenging thing and like not lose the vibe it's yeah. a classic thing you know you have a, a beginner and you're like cool play it faster and they play it faster and harder play it slower and they do both so trying to like disentangle those things in there like is um singers trying yeah. to sing high notes without like like <laughs> yeah yeah there's all those like so you know you're playing playing a video game that's a driving game and you're like doing that which now consoles incorporate which i kind of like because i still do that but yeah it is it is interesting how that's come back uh sort of around the other way where uh, it's like uh, oh actually you don't need to totally brutalize the guitar to get good sounds as yeah. soon as you started talking about this leon um like oh you know put heavy strings on because i hit so hard the first thing that came to my brain is like people that have come in no was no no no, no. like uh, uh like similar to that in the studio yeah so we're thinking about like doing this album in like 432 <laughs> like, okay and it's just like all right i know where this is gonna go and now we'll have to have some some conversations <laughs> your, your studio's in danger of kind of smelling like a skunk at some stage yeah i think i told you like not 432 but i did that thing a few months ago for like this big acdc fest and i had oh, to yeah. play with a um a bagpipe or bagpipe orchestra and they their tuning was in 453 and that was weird like yeah, just, my tuner did not go to at, bro yeah, like you, that was just, uh, there was like a bunch of kids playing bagpipes and it's just like, they're not going to tune to you. You've got to tune to them. My tuner did not have enough sense to go up to um, 430, uh, 453 or something. So that was a little tough, but he was good enough, thankfully. Yeah, luckily you can listen to things. Uh, Warren, I want to talk about the Bollywood thing a yep. little bit because you mentioned you're still doing, you know, sessions with that. I mean, this is something that is such a massive industry but you know because of the world we live in you know it's like oh, oh what people people in india make movies and music as well like I, I i didn't realize that what 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 are some of the misconceptions that i probably have and maybe people listen to this when they think about that and like how how much overlap is there i guess between sort of traditional european or atlantic let's say atlantic pop and rock music and new things that are being incorporated from that are just new there because of it and also traditional elements to india um, i mean the you, you definitely have a, a a huge influence of the indian classical tradition in bollywood especially with the vocals and the ornamentation they use like you know those wiggly things they do with their voice and stuff like yeah. that um but there always has been i think back from the 60s and 70s a, a bit of that uh, you know, British and American influence creeping in as well. There's heaps of stuff you like, you know, the, you know, the shaft style war guitar, like all that kind of stuff going on. You know, if, like in classic Bollywood now, it's got like heaps of that. Uh, there's always been like a rock thing also creeping in. Um, 
there's there's one like Bollywood remake. I don't know if they like licensed it or whatever, but it it sounds exactly like Child in Time by Deep Purple. All right, <laughs> <laughs> note for note. And there's there's been a tradition also of that you know plagiarism that you know we, I find hilarious now because there were no copyright laws back then, so no one was held accountable. <laughs> um, having said that, I think. Uh, like especially uh, um, my uncle's part of this uh, music trio called Shankar Esan Loy, and they had um, something called Dil Chata Hai that was like a, a film that you know did really well and the soundtrack did really well as well, and that kind of opened a few new avenues. It kind of modernized the sound of Bollywood. There's another guy called A.R. Rahman who's an Oscar winner. I, I had the um, pleasure of you know playing a couple of tours with him as well. So he was another groundbreaker. And, you know, things at that point, you know, especially I think late 90s, early 2000s, which is when I kind of got involved in the industry, that there was like a, a lot of new influences coming through as well. So, uh, I mean, you'll find everything from drum and bass to hip hop to dubstep and all that stuff as well. But there's also a bit of the the rock stuff. Now, curiously enough, I, I think like most mainstream Bollywood listeners don't really like distorted guitar. <laughs> so you kind of have to almost like find a way of you know getting it in there but it'll never be like you know say as loud as would be on a white snake album or something like yeah that. yeah <laughs> um so i've played quite a few you know guitar solos and stuff like that uh and uh i remember there's one there's one song uh that uh they told me it was going to be a big rock song so i took the soldano and then it turned out to be like almost like this funk kind of thing. So I ended up using the the clean channel of the Soldano. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then that became like a huge hit, you know, uh, to the point of like now some 300 million views or some ridiculous. Oh, wow. Like that. yeah. That's amazing. Ridiculous. So with, I mean, it's really easy, uh, I guess, like say, again, the, you know, call it like the Eurocentric world is like music is often just. It's like it's just music, and this is kind of like a phenomenon of you know, basically the '60s, you know, where it's like yeah, the Beatles and uh, well, mostly the Beatles, where it's like yeah, you can just be into the music aspect of something and appreciate it. But like <laughs> the majority of music cultures around the world, it's like music and dance uh, are really closely linked, and like or you know, there's music for weddings and music for other occasions and things like that. Uh, is that something that's still really tightly? bound up with the Bollywood thing or is it a little bit more, I guess, say like, you know, European American style where it's just like, oh, this is a cool song and I dig it because it's a cool song. Um, well, there's, there's both, I would think. Uh, like, say, for example, for weddings, for example, most Indian weddings would feature a very Bollywood dominant soundtrack. But um, I mean, I grew up Catholic, right? So when I was a kid, like all right. the all the weddings that I went to had like bands playing Beatles songs, and there were some that played Steely Dan and you know, all, yeah. all sorts of different music. And to a point where almost like we didn't want to be associated with with Bollywood, you know, yep. that's not our kind of thing. You know, we we do this kind of music, which is nice or, or whatever. So um, I almost grew up as an outsider to. Indian music in that sense. I mean, I was surrounded by it, but I never like was immersed in it. If you know what the yeah, difference, I understand? Yeah. So, uh, like, my influences were predominantly Western to the point where, like, when I went and started playing Bollywood songs, it was like, you know, they are. Do you know this song? And it was like as popular as Hotel California is to <laughs> us, but I didn't know it. 
And so I had to like say, no, I don't. And they said, well, how do you not know this? I said, I don't know. I've never heard it. You know, yeah. a thing like that. Um, on the other hand, if you grew up in that Indian classical tradition, then most Western music thing would be, you know, um, like almost like an alien thing to some people. Whereas like there were kids in my school who had the advantage of both, you know, they right. grew up listening to Nirvana as well as, as Bollywood. So because it's such a huge country, I think like it's hard to pinpoint and say like, okay, this is exactly, you know, what's going on here. And then there's also this regional markets, like especially in the South of India, they don't really speak Hindi. So they have their own regional film music, which is totally different. And there's some really cool stuff coming out of there as well. So um, I think at, once the internet made everything like, you know, almost very democratic in that sense, the lines blurred rapidly, yeah. you know. And before the internet, we had something called Star TV, which was a satellite TV uh, coming from Hong Kong. And we were listening to all the latest music videos. You know, I remember switching on the TV and Stone Temple Pilots' Interstate Love Song came on. So, you know, th that's as much of my roots as, you know, Bollywood music would be to, you know, anyone else, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, um, that's interesting. So my friend, uh, uh, GT, and if he's listening to this, shout out to GT. He... Uh, like he was in a, a metal band in India before he moved to Australia. Uh, and, you know, you just listen to it and you're like, yeah, it's a metal band. You know, and they won a pretty big regional band competition and got to make a music video. And uh, the guys in that band, they just had like Marty Friedman guest on a song. Right. Uh, and he he was saying, it's like, yeah, they just ran into him at the airport. <laughs> you know, he did a few shows in India and they were like, you know, he's hanging out there at the airport. And, you know, the, the two guys who recognize him were like, oh, my God. You know, I'm probably butchering this story, but, you know, they met Marty Friedman and were just like, you know, yeah. do you do sessions? And he was like, yeah, send me some stuff. So that I always thought of as like a super cool story where, uh, and again, it's that like outside perspective of, you know, you grow up in like suburban Australia. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a pretty good cricket team who tour every four years and their fans <laughs> are mental. And then, you know, every, there's always a pretty decent, you know, Indian restaurant within walking distance i mean there's a really good one near me that i absolutely love but um and i love going there because i always have the bollywood music videos which are insane you know like the the production levels are oh, yeah. just something else so been there, hey? yeah i've been there with you hey oh yeah many i mean that, you, that first time the, was the mindari one the mindari one oh, yeah mate yep <laughs> yep never forget that we should go again we let's, should go again let's it's, do it, mate really really have, good have um, any of you guys ever experienced indian chinese food no no but i was listening to something about it recently where somebody mentioned it so tell me more so the chinese immigrants to uh, india i think were predominantly in a city called calcutta and over time you know the like you're an immigrant in a new country like the ingredients and all start blurring and stuff like that mm -hmm. so it's it's a it's a thing you know indian chinese food because you don't you're like especially when i moved to auckland when i went to a chinese restaurant it was very different i mean it's it's great and i've gotten really used to it now but i still kind of you know every time i go back to india that's like one of the first things i want to eat is indian chinese food right it's it's a particular hybrid. So if you ever find you know um, some Indian restaurants in in your parts that do have that, try that. They have this um, thing called a chicken Manchurian. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, that's the thing. No, no, because I've heard of chicken Manchurian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it's, it's, it's as Indian as you'll get, but it does have some you know with the soy sauce and everything. Like yeah, that. yeah. Because it's the same thing with Australian Chinese food. Um, and I think for 
you know, like for our generation, I was listening to somebody talk about this recently where, you know, we've kind of grown up in with the internet. So like we really kind of poo poo anything that's not super authentic yeah. uh, when you're actually overlooking the fact that, you know, Chinese immigrants have been coming to Australia be well before it was a federation. And again, you just don't have access to the ingredients. So like Australian Chinese food, like lemon chicken is its own thing. That's, that's an Australian food and every local Chinese place you have, if they're not nailing lemon chicken, they don't say, you know, they don't stay in business. Uh, and a bunch of other, like dim sims, uh, uh, I always just thought they were just an Aussie thing, but yeah, another, another one of those things where it's like, yeah, actually it's people have been living here for generations doing their thing and you won't ever find it anywhere else in the world because of that. Uh, but then for us, it's like, oh no, no, you know, it's, I went on this, my, you know, I went on this thing and, you know, we went to this really remote part of the village and, um, what's the, uh, the principal Skinner thing, Tondi, do you remember where he's like, I was held as like a prisoner of war. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I subsisted enough <laughs> four soup with coconut milk and shrimp and four types of rice. I nearly went mad trying to recreate the, recreate the experience. Yeah, sort of like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Another one. And it's a bit like that, you know, uh, cooking and, and food and music are so, so similar in that regard. You know, even the words we use tasty and, you know, oh yeah, it's got this stank about it or something. So, um, yeah, that's. I find it very similar to mixing as well, you know, because like you're obviously you you'll you'll know the the connotations, well a little bit of this, and you know sometimes you're almost doing it on the fly without like really following a recipe, yeah, you know, almost just yep. winging it, and it turns out awesome or it turns out absolute you know rubbish. Oh. You're like, okay, I'm going <laughs> to learn from that. I'm not going to do that again. Uh, just remind uh, me, I made the best food an analogy to some students last week with uh, mixing. And it's completely gone out of my brain. I have to, I have to ask the students next week. It was so good. I thought I'd just change the world yeah. and I needed to write it down. I'm like, oh, I'll remember that for next time. So, but there's a lot of it'll, good ones. It'll come to you in a dream, mate. Um, before we, before we finish up as well, Warren, um, uh, the rack thing, when did you really get into that? Because that's how we got introduced yeah. to one another. Right. So, uh, I was telling you earlier about the Elisa's MIDI verb and, uh, not too long after that, um, my uh, uncle's friend was selling a Samsung PSA-1. Hmm. So that became my uh, main like touring preamp because I could just jack it into whatever effects return of, uh, you know, whatever rental was there. Right, units. Yeah, and I would travel with that that two-space um, rack. Uh, then uh, I think once I got into the 800, I kind of, you know, got out of it for a while. Um, after I, um, I think I moved back to India, uh, again, I was like, you know, delving into all the 80s Landau stuff and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, you know, I was trying to do the, the job with plugins and you can you can go pretty far with, with that sort of thing. But if there's a certain sound you're chasing, then you kind of need to like investigate the, the actual gear used. Um, it was hilarious. There was a friend of mine, he was selling an Eventide uh, H4000, I think. Mm -hmm. Yep. And... Uh, just below that, another guy commented, hey, I'm selling uh, Eventide H3000 DS DSE for um, like half the price of what my friend right. wanted. So, uh, and I happened to be in the same city as that guy. It was outside Bombay. It was in uh, in Madras, in Chennai. So I just messaged the guy saying, hey, I'm you know, here for a day. Can I come over and check it out? So I did. And he said, oh, I've got a universal in audio endorsement and I don't need all, all right. this old gear anymore. So... Uh, you know, you can have it. I tested it out. It was working fine. And then he says, 
oh, before you leave, I have one other thing. You want to just check it out. And it turned out to be a PCM 70. Yeah. Like, oh, man, this is a good day. You know, <laughs> so I went to the ATM, withdrew the money, gave it to him. And, uh, you know, I traveled back to it with the cabin baggage. And the guy's security was like looking at all the buttons on the eventide, wondering what the hell is this? You know, I said, no, that's an effects unit and whatever. Yeah. So it's so cool, of- isn't it? <laughs> It, it just definitely looks like something, you know, fancy. So um, then I started like getting into, and I think I already had an MPX-1 from being a Lando fanboy. That was his main rack effects for, um, for all his gigs and stuff like that. Um, and then those three became like the, you know, the, the main effects that I would use. And uh, recently I found a SPX-90. Uh, yeah, there's it's it's just like guitar amps, right? You know, you, yeah, there's you can distort a guitar signal one way, but like a non-master volume Marshall is different, you know, to the way a Fender Deluxe Reverb breaks up, which is just different fundamentally to like a Soldano or something like that. And you yeah. love all those sounds, and they're appropriate for different settings. Yeah. Uh, have you ever tried a pedal called the Electro Harmonic Super Ego? No. No, I've seen them, but I haven't tried them. I'll, I'll show you one cool thing because I, I found this in tandem with the H3000. Just before we go, I'll show you this sound. So what the Super Ego does is like you play a chord and then you hit the, the trigger switch and it just makes a pad out of it. Oh, okay. okay. But then when you hit an, another chord and you re-trigger, it portamentos to the new chord. All right. So, so like, let's say, you know, you've got this and it's going to make a... Right? That's what happens with the thing. And you hit a new chord. Oh, cool. That sort of thing. Now, when you add the H3000 to it, um, you get a really cool thing happening. So, right? The crystal echoes. (laughs) And then we put in the low octave. Oh, my God. That's pretty bench, man. Yeah, it's that's not, awesome. So if you ever find one, try that with your H3000. I, I literally have just looked up the Super Ego <laughs> on eBay, and I think I have to, because I it, I think that's a, just another electro harmonics pedal. I'm like, I was aware it existed, but I never really heard anyone do anything with it. Man, I'm pretty sure I saw one on Marketplace like this week. <laughs> yeah. like, for real. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, all righty. Well, mate. You've been so generous with your time. What have you got? What have you got coming up, gig-wise and tool-wise? Are you, um, you know, hitting the local circuit again? Are you planning on going back to India anytime soon? Uh, yeah, there are some gigs in India. There's a couple of festival gigs in um, early November. Awesome. And before that, there's a few uh, Bollywood gigs as well. So it's going to be fun. Um, you're in, in NZ. I think I should actually do a little more work in, um, you know, trying to get Blackstar Blues gigs here because I do have a couple of friends here that I, I play with. Uh, but if you've just been like really lazy with, you know, you know how small the, the New Zealand music scene is. And like, unless you're one of the bigger bands, it's kind of like, you know, you play your, what's the equivalent of your local pub. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, make, make some money to buy burgers after the gig or something like that. <laughs> 
So uh, there's another couple of friends that I play as a session guitar player. I kind of like playing with singers as well. So I, I like to keep a balance of the instrumental guitar thing as as well as working with vocalists. So hopefully um, once I meet a few more people and, you know, just get out a bit more, uh, I've just been planning to do that. And, it you know, life catches up and, you know, kids and stuff like that. So um, there's another... Um, albums worth of music that has to be finished and and released as well because like i see my uh new music 2023 folder and it's like growing <laughs> every time i have a cool idea i put it down and then now the thing is like you have to turn from songwriter to producer and you, you know make sense of it and package it as a uh you know the sad thing these days is everyone's releasing singles you know so you put out an yeah. album and it just goes like that unless you're dropping them like every yeah. every week or every month or whatever yeah so um i just like you know keep busy playing playing music meet new people you know that it all it's always inspiring working with other people because like uh, you can tend to get very um isolated by yourself just doing everything just because you can but it's nice yeah. bouncing ideas of you know other people as well so yeah cool. that's the that's what's coming up yeah yeah so where can people find you on the internet warren uh, usually Instagram, that's probably where I'm most active. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel, uh, which I try to, but I'm not as prolific as you, Leon, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I just find it uh, like hard to just find time sometimes to, because I have these ideas of oh, this will be a good video, this will be a good video. and just, So I'm going to try and you know get that out, off the ground as well. So if you just Google Blackstar Blues one word, all lowercase, you'll, you'll find uh, where I am. And most of the session stuff I've done, if you want to look that up, that's just under Warren Mendonca. Fantastic. Well, mate, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Have, it's been a pleasure. Have a, have a great evening. And uh, we'll, uh, as Nick Granville was saying last week, going to have to steal your curry recipe uh, you when, we, when we finish up. <laughs> and Because uh, <laughs> I'm very, very curious because it's, uh, you know, if – it's up there with if someone was like you can you can only ever eat one type of food for the rest of your life. What would it be? It'd, it'd be one of the choices I would heavily consider. So um, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom, and to everybody else watching, thanks for tuning into the Gear Podcast. Peace out.